So we all want to belong somewhere. It's a pretty normal feeling. For many of us, the first time we felt this was probably in junior high or middle school. Maybe early, maybe later, maybe we still feel it. But where are my people? Who do I belong with? Where do I fit? Our world is dying to know where each and every one of them fit. Where is it? Where, where is that community we can belong to, to be a part of something bigger? Sadly, these communities that the world puts together will actually not meet the needs of the individual for the community that they long for. Outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ and his adopted family, there is no true community. There's no community that we long for on earth except for to be found here in the church of Christ. So we've been looking at what the gospel's been doing, and we've been talking about how when the gospel takes root in each of our lives, it spins off like a flywheel. It spins off the fruit of the gospel. We've talked about how it creates personal change. We've talked about how it leads to service. We've talked about mission. And today we're going to talk about how the gospel is the way to have true community. It's the way that community is coming about in our churches. It's a natural byproduct. Just like when you plant an apple seed, you don't expect a strawberry to pop up. You expect an apple. So the fruit of the gospel is that it creates community. It's the natural byproduct. So today, if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And uh, as you're going there, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor John. I am the, the pastor at the Gladstone campus. Uh, I get the privilege of calling that home. And so this is our, our last look at our spiritual dynamic. We've been doing this series where the pastors have been rotating around, and this will be our final look. And next week, we'll get back into Matthew. So if you'll turn with me to, to the Romans passage, we're going to actually start at the end. So look at verse 7. Verse 7 starts off with the word, therefore. That means this is the conclusion. So, spoiler alert, we're going to the end of the story before we explain how we got there. Usually that leads to really bad movies, prequel movies, okay? But in this instance, we got to know what he's talking about so we can see how he gets there. So look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of the Lord. A therefore is like an equal sign. It's a conclusion to an argument. It's saying, because of what I've said before, this is what you must do. See, Paul is teaching us how to have harmony, how to have unity, how to have fellowship, or the word we've chosen to use, community. How do we have this community? So he's telling us how to do it. So verses 1 through 4 are the context for verses 5, 6, and 7. 1 through 4 are going to tell us about some issues going on in the Roman church that Paul's writing to. Verses 5 and 6 is Paul exclaiming in mid-sentence, he stops and he prays, not only for the Roman church, but for us. And then in verse 7, he tells us what to do with what he's already said. So look at verse 1. I've summarized 1 through 4 as, the strong must bear with the weak by not pleasing themselves. Look at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
So Paul is writing this magnum opus, this, the greatest letter ever written in the book of Romans. And in verse four, chapter 14, he's dealing with some inner problems inside the church. And the problem is dealing with how do new believers and more mature believers, how do they interact with each other? And the number one issue has been food. Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. He says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, if we cherry pick that verse out of the Bible, we might have to change our lunch plans today, don't we? This is not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not saying go vegetarian and don't ever drink wine. What he's saying is there's a problem in the church, and the problem is new believers are convicted about the fact that the meat that is sold in the markets is also used for sacrificing to idols. And so for them, that's a place of struggle because either it reminds them of past sins or it's just something that they struggle with. And so Paul is saying, you who are mature, now this has nothing to do with age. This has to do with spiritual maturity. You can be an 80-year-old who is an infant spiritually, and you could be a 20-year-old who is a veteran saint, depending on your maturity. So Paul's saying, don't get hung up on these things that you have no problem with. If you're strong, bear with the weak and do what pleases them, what brings them up. Paul's saying, forego your freedom for the benefit of your brother or sister in Christ. And see, the thing is, we hear the phrase, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, and usually that's around money. But God also loves a cheerful giver of putting aside the things that please us to please someone else. You know, no, oh, fine, I won't eat the meat, gosh. No, it's okay, we won't even bring it out. We won't even bring it up. Let's set it aside. Let's please the other. When we joyfully give up our rights for someone else, that pleases the Lord. And this is not the way the world operates, isn't it? The world's way is, hey, if you're strong, you're the one that sets the, sets the way to go. If you're mature, you're the one that decides where we're going. Jesus, no surprise, has turned the world upside down, and Paul is just building off of that. He's saying the strong must set aside their desires to love those who are weak. This denial of self or denial of ease is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not about me. It's about the other. It's time for us to realize that Jesus doesn't tell us to sit in our comfort zone, but many times he tells us to leave our comfort zone for the benefit of others. So, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. Now, how does this relate to what he just said? Well, if you look at the end of verse one, he says, don't please yourself. Verse two is the positive version of that. He's saying, don't please yourself. Instead, please your neighbor. Put your neighbor's needs ahead of them. Now, this is not you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of neighborly love. This is not, hey, you watch my house, I'll watch your house. We'll be a neighborhood watch. That's not what this is talking about. This is building them up and doing what is good for them solely for that purpose. This echoes what we saw in Leviticus 19, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's already quoted from this in Romans 13, but the goal here is twofold, for their good and to build them up. For their good and to build them up. So what does that look like? Well, we've tried here at New Life to help you see what that looks like. What does it mean to focus on someone else's good or to build them up? We have something called the Kingdom Initiative, which is a, a daily email just of 
practical ways to take care of your neighbor, to love your neighbor. A few weeks ago, one of the initiatives was, do you have more than you need? Is your freezer full? Did your garden produce too much? Think about giving it to your neighbor. These are, these are practical ways that we have to build up your neighbor and do things for their good. And if you want that, you can sign up on your connection card or on the Sunday Hub. But see, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus Christ, to being a believer does not mean I do what I want, nor does it mean I always do what the other person wants. It means I do what glorifies the Lord. I do what makes God look as great as he is. How can I influence people for the gospel if I'm worried about myself? One of the, uh, one of the Puritans had this great quote. I got to read the whole thing. Once you say yes to faith in Jesus and you accept his blueprint for your life, the whole world can no longer revolve around you or your needs or your gratifications. Instead, you'll have to revolve around the world, seeking to bandage its wounds, loving dead men into life, finding the lost, wanting the unwanted, and leaving far behind all the selfish, and listen to this, the selfish parasitical concerns which drain our time and energy. What he's saying is, he says, when we become a believer, no longer are we self-focused. Instead, we're completely other-focused. It's about denying of yourself. It's about saying, God, you're enough, and I'm going to show that you're enough by not worrying about my needs, and I'm going to worry about other people's needs. This is making much of God. And Paul doesn't just say this because he wants to. Look at what he does in verse 3. He says, Christ did this. Verse 3 starts off with the word for, which means this is the ground or the reason. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Think about Christ and what he gave up. What privileges did Christ give up? And Paul is saying, give up your privileges to eat meat and drink wine. Because by comparison, the most that you could give up is nothing compared to what Christ gave up to come down and be a man. I mean, you think about this, right? You know, there's the, there's the constant back and forth between who's the richest person on, on the planet. Is it, is it Jeff Bezos? Is it Elon Musk or some, you know, Arab sheik living somewhere? Who's the richest person? It doesn't matter. Because if they gave up all their wealth, it would not even be a drop in the bucket compared to what Jesus gave up to come be a man in our place and die a criminal's death. And so Paul's point is, Jesus did not please himself and he gave up way more than we would ever give up. So then the second part, you can see it's in quotations there. The reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. What does that mean? Well, this is the proof about what Jesus has done. This comes from Psalm 69.9. This is a very popular psalm in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, all four Gospels quote it explaining what Jesus is doing on the cross. See, the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus here, and it's saying all of the things that you deserve, Jesus is taking on in your place. See, you know, the gospel is not new news, it's good news. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to what Paul is talking about here. And we think about it for a second, what are the two greatest commandments? Love your neighbor as yourself is the second, but love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind is your first. Right? Those are the summary of all of the commandments. And honestly, if you're doing those two commandments, there's no time left over to love yourself. So this should be easy. Well, it's not. 
Because we being fallen creatures that we are, we find ways around this. I heard a Bible teacher one time say, well, in order to love your neighbor, you must first learn to love yourself. And can I say I have a word for that? It's a big theological word for that. It's called baloney. Because here's the thing, we don't need to learn how to love ourselves, do we? Narcissism or focusing on self is the default setting. When children are born, they know how to do three things really well. Focus on self, cry, and pee and poop, right? Maybe that's four. So anyway, those are the things that we're good at. We don't have to teach them how to do that, right? That's how we are as well. We are so self-focused, and Jesus through his example, and then Paul pointing us back to it is saying, be other-focused. What's amazing is when we see this in the world, isn't it? Our world can't get their minds wrapped around this. Now, maybe you saw a few weeks ago, now it's probably been a month now, uh, it was the Little League World Series, or the games to get into the Little League World Series. There was this young man, he's 12, young boy, he's 12 years old, his name was Isaiah, they called him Zay. He's standing in the batter's box, there's a couple runners out in the field, and he's standing there, the pitcher winds up and throws the ball and beans him in the side of the head, sends him head over heels onto the ground, and it was gnarly. It missed the helmet, hit him right in the head. And then what did he do? Did he do what all the grown-up little, big little boys in the major leagues do? Did he rush the mound? No. He got up, dusted himself off, went to first base. But here's where the story gets amazing gets to first base, he looks over at the pitcher, and the pitcher's got his head down, clearly upset. So Zay, calmly, I'm glad he didn't run because somebody would have thought he was being like one of those big kids, but he walks over to the pitcher, and he puts his arm around him, and he says, you can hear it because the coaches are coming out to visit him, and the coaches are mic'd up. You can hear him say, you're doing great, bud. You're awesome. This is, you're, you're doing great. I'm okay. You're awesome. And he's rubbing his back. The pitcher was sobbing because he thought he'd hurt Isaiah, and also because he thought he was going to make his team lose and not go to the, the World Series. What an amazing picture. This is what one news uh, station says. The whole scene was the opposite of what normally happens, when a pitcher might walk over to make sure a batter is not hurt. Here, the blonde from Oklahoma, who said he had a bruise from the incident, was soothing the emotional wounds that the pitcher was feeling on the inside. And listen, people in the crowd were clearly moved with cameras catching people wiping tears from their eyes. This is so foreign to our world. This idea of putting someone else's needs ahead of their own, loving your neighbor for his own good, building them up. This is as rare as a unicorn sighting in our world. It is so not the norm. This video has been seen by countless millions of people. I mean, Zay and the pitcher both have been interviewed on SportsCenter for ESPN. And what I love best is when the pitcher was asked what he thought. He said, the lesson that you should, we should learn from this is that you care for other people. Like if they're down, you should try to care for them. And listen to this. And try to build them up. This young man saw what this kind of love does. Now, if, if we're looking at it from a worldly perspective, we have to, every once in a while, be inspired to be good. We have to have these inspirational stories to instruct us what to do. But Paul tells us we have something better than the occasional heartfelt story that we see on the news. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 
This seems weird. It's just kind of thrown in there. Paul again starts with four, which is saying this is a reason for what he had just said. What Paul's saying here is he's saying our guide is not encouraging and inspirational stories. Our guide is Scripture. Paul is talking about the Old Testament. He says the Old Testament is there to instruct us how to endure and how to encourage in pleasing other people. This passage is giving us direction to God's Word is the place to know what is good for others and what is building up. And he says, and Paul is going to tell us in verses 5 and 6 that it's the community that is good for us, that the building up comes from fellowship with fellow believers. But first, before we get into that, how does the world do community? How does the world do community? Well, see, the world's all about choosing your neighbor, isn't it? It's like, I want to live by those people, or I want to I lo- love those people. It's kind of like deciding who you will love as yourself, right? Well, I'm going to love them like I'd love me, so I want someone who looks just like me. Ironically, our world is all about finding people just like you to love because they're just like you. It's kind of a weird way of loving yourself, isn't it? I'm going to take a bunch of people that are just like me, and then I'm going to love them because they're just like me. The world bases its community on life experience, identity, similar causes or needs. Jesus points out that this is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? In Matthew, we saw this last year, Matthew 5, 46, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and sinners do the same. The world's all about comfort-based community. It's about building community on what makes me feel good. And so it's this weird, I'm going to love you so that I feel loved type of thing. The gospel's the exact opposite. I'm going to love you because I am loved by God. Paul wants us to see what a gospel community really looks like. See, like I said earlier, the natural outworking of the Spirit working in our lives is that we want to be around other people, that the Spirit's working in their lives as well. The gospel produces community, like an apple tree comes from an apple seed. So now we get to verse 5 and 6. Now Paul just bursts out in prayer here. I'm not sure, you know, how this happened. He included it in here. But he says in verses 5 and 6, Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he praying for? Harmony and unity, that means community. He wants us to be working together. The phrase, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, this means that our community comes not from same life experience, not from living in the same area of town. It comes from the fact that we are all united to Christ. That's where our unity comes from. Through the gospel, through our connection, through the Holy Spirit, this is where unity comes from. Here's a good way of summing this up. The purpose of unity in the church is not unity for unity's sake. It's unity for glorifying God's sake. Glorifying God is a way of feeling and thinking and acting that makes much of God. It shows that God is supremely good. God is all wise. God is all satisfying. And so he's directing the Romans, and then he's also directing us. He's praying for the Roman church, and he's praying for us as well. Now, we don't get this kind of community by certain programs. We don't get this community by certain mindsets and techniques and things like that. Instead, we get it by understanding what community is. I mean, the two greatest commandments tell us what to do. 
but they don't tell us how to do it. How do we get our minds wrapped around this? The first thing we must see is we must see that this is not a spiritual luxury. It's not something that we add on if we have time. Instead, it's a spiritual necessity. Yes, God speaks to us through his word when we read it on our own. And yes, God speaks to us when we gather together corporately. But the place where he speaks to us most directly and consistently is when we have people that we're in relationship with who are constantly working on each other with the gospel. This is what we are supposed to have. As one author puts it, for God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with other believers. And it must be constantly fed for its own deepening and enrichment. This togetherness is a togetherness that just transcends all normal reasons why people get together. It's not a nice-to-have element. It's a must-have element. So how do churches grow community? Well, there's two main ways we do this. First one is called Gospel Plus. This is where we gather people together around a shared something, age group, life experience, whatever, and then we sprinkle some gospel on the top of it. What we do is we put a group together that is comfortable with each other, and then we add in gospel along with that. This is not how the Bible puts community together. This is not what Paul's talking about. Yes, this works. Across our nation, across the world, this is how people grow small groups. Get people together that are the same, and then bring some Bible to it. But this is not the biblical model. Let's think about the disciples for a second. This group of 12 is a motley crew, isn't it? It's not a group that you would put together for like experiences. Yeah, a majority of them are fishermen. However, they're fishermen from different families. And different families are going to be fighting with other families of fishermen for the best fishing spots. So just because they all do the same thing doesn't mean there's not animosity there. And we haven't even gotten to the two that disagree the most, have we? There's two disciples that are on the opposite end politically. We've got Simon the Zealot who's like, overthrow Rome. And then we've got Matthew the tax collector who's going, give me money to support Rome or I'll throw you in jail. Can you imagine the conversations that those two guys would have around the fire at night? Not to mention the brooding squads of fishermen. This was not a group that got together based on their comfort. They got together based on their Christ. And this is what we need to understand. If a group of people in our church could gather together without Jesus, it's not testifying to the fact that the gospels changed their lives. It's not supernatural. It's not what we see Paul talking about here. A gospel plus group is not based on Christ. It's based on the other with Christ sprinkled in. We must remember, whenever we add anything to the gospel, hey, you know, you're saved by Jesus, but also some works, you just lost the gospel. You can't say, I, I'm saved by Jesus and. Jesus didn't say, I am a way or I'm most of the way. He said, I am the way, the singular way. So if that's the way we do it wrongly, how do we do it rightly? This is a gospel-revealing group. This is a group that would not exist outside of the gospel. If, this, if, if people come and look at our groupings and we go, how did those two get together? How did this group come about? Then we speak to the gospel. The gospel is what brings us about. D.A. Carson says, ideally the church is not made up of natural friends. It's instead made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income, 
common politics, common ancestry, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. In this life, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. See, our lives need to be understood to be an acted-out parable. When people look at us, they need to go, how did that happen? Somebody tell me. And that's where we come up with the having a ready answer. You need to know Jesus because that's why we are in this position. That's why we are together. See, when we join and surround people who look and act and think just like us, we're saying, I don't really need you, Jesus, to make this group. As a matter of fact, when we gather together and we just focus on all the ways we're alike and then we call Jesus in at the end when we are doing our prayers, it's like saying, hey God, we don't need you for this community. We'll call you when we need you just to answer some prayers and then we'll put you back over there. In actuality, we're acting just like practical atheists, aren't we? Saying, I'll call God when I need it. Break the glass when I need Jesus. Otherwise, I don't need you. So when we grow groups and we we don't allow the gospel to be the focus of what our groupings are, we're not having this community that Paul is so lifting up here. Now don't hear me say that hanging around people who are like you is sinful. Please don't hear me say that, because I'm not. Some of you may have become believers because somebody just like you invited you to a church or a Bible study. So I'm not saying it's, it's sinful to do that. But what I'm saying is, when it comes to our groupings here, our life groups, our our Bible studies that spring up wherever they spring up, they need to not be homogenous, same with same. You need to get people that are different than you. You need to be with people who push and pull you in ways that make the gospel more evident. Our groupings, our, our, our gatherings, make the invisible visible right? The Holy Spirit is not something we can see floating around in here, but when we gather together in ways that the world makes no sense of, the Holy Spirit is on display. The gospel is on display. Here's another quote. Our new society of the church is not a mutual admiration society. It's a shared admiration society. Our affection for each other is derivative. It derives from our worship of God. We are saved out of a million different communities to become his family. Our identity no longer stems from our families of origin, our professions, our interests and ambitions. It's because we are Christ. Now listen to this. We are Christians. And so us as urban American professional class Christians, we should have more in common with our working class rural Sudanese brothers in Christ than we do with our blood brothers who live just down the street. And that's what we need to understand. We need to get in our minds what connects us is Christ, not where we live, not how we do life, not that we're Americans. And none of those are bad. But what connects us in our groupings is Christ. And now we get to why we have to do this. Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of the Lord. This is Paul's application. He says, now that I've laid out that community is really important, putting others ahead of yourself is important, now go and welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. This is the only command in this section here. This is the only command where Paul says, you must do this. The word welcome is a crazy word in Greek. It's prolambatheno, which means to receive intensely. So you're going to welcome the heck out of that person. Right? It means to, to welcome intensely, completely, absolutely. 
Because it's compared to Christ. Christ doesn't go, he's not somebody who just goes, hi, welcome, and then lets them go on. He goes, welcome, you're now a part of the family. I'm putting the robes on you. You belong here. You are a part of his family. This is the way Christ tells us we are to welcome others. It means knowing that this is going to be hard, we are to welcome each other because it glorifies God. Harmony and reconciliation and welcoming across differences is difficult. Generationally, ethnically, tastes of food and music and leisure, we've got all sorts of differences. But when we welcome people that are different than us, it glorifies Christ. Let me give you an example of this. I met two guys last March. Their names are Kenny King and William Marshall. Kenny King is a black man about this tall, and William Marshall is a white man about this tall. They are about as different as you can imagine. They live in Sykeston, Missouri. Sykeston, Missouri was the last place in the state of Missouri to have a lynching. It is a city that is literally divided right down the middle with train tracks, and on one side is the black population, and the other side is the white, and there is no mixing to this day. About five years ago, Kenny and William were both praying, Lord, this is not right. This is not right. As a matter of fact, this was one of the passages that was on both of their hearts. And they said, I don't know how to do it. William's over here going, I don't know how to cross those tracks and get people. Kenny's going, I don't know how to cross these tracks and get people. And that was until William and Kenny met at an FCA event, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event. They got together and they started having coffee together. And these two men became closer than brothers. Their families became nearly blood families. They are so close to each other. And they both came to each other and they said, I got a crazy idea. I think we need to close our churches. They're like, what? Close your churches? Yeah, and then we need to put, a, put together a church with a black pastor and a white pastor and we start inviting the community and say, this is what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And I love that. And, and one of the things that was the most amazing about watching these two men tell their story. So Kenny went first, and he's up there, and he's very energetic, and he's telling the story. And I'm watching William standing right here. And yes, it's amazing that they have this church that to this day is about half black and about half white. That's amazing. But what was more amazing was as I was watching William standing back and looking at his brother in Christ, I was watching the way he was looking at Kenny. And there was such a depth of love in William's eyes. I was just blown away. I had to actually ask him for their notes afterwards because I was too busy looking at William. And then when they switch places and Kenny backs up and the way he's looking at William, he's going, I'm like, I want my sons to love each other like that. They're not there yet. They're still young. <laughs> but that's the kind of love that I want to feel. And that's the kind of love that I want to give to my fellow believers that love of just, this is one of my brothers in Christ. This is one of my sisters in Christ. And the thing is, those two men could not be any more different here in America than each other. They're so different, but yet they're united in Christ. Their church is called Grace Bible of Sykeston, Missouri. You can find them online, and they have a whole explanation of their story. When the community of the local church denies explanation, it confirms the supernatural power of God. So what does this look like here at New Life? Well, first it means get out of your comfort zone. This is not where we come to feel comfortable. I mean, the chairs can feel comfortable and you can have some nice, not cold coffee and whatever else makes you comfortable. But when it comes to our relationships, we need to leave our comfort zones. 
We need to find somebody we do not know. Matter of fact, we need to invite people here that may not fit here, that don't know the Lord yet. Bring them and then meet them. It is hard work, but it's the Spirit's work in us. Allow the Spirit to be unleashed. When we take time to love those who are different than us, it shows that the Lord is working in our lives. Our Sunday gatherings, we should be gathering across categories. We should be gathering and being out of our comfort zone. The next step is you need to join a life group. We've got life groups here at New Life Wilsonville. We gather around God's word. We connect with people more deeply. I love it that it says in our our little booklet about life groups, it's where we get close enough to each other to annoy each other. I love that. We gotta get close enough that we can, all those barriers are brought down and we are real with each other. We put the gospel on display. So today, leave your comfort zone. Strike up a conversation with someone you don't know. Go to a life group. Find someone here who's in a life group and get there. Now, if I stop right there, I've just told you all what to do. I've just said, go do this, which is what application should be, right? However, if you're just doing it because the guy up in front's telling you what to do, that's law. It's not gospel. Gospel says, do this because Christ has done this in me. And so I want you to see where we see this in the text, because this, this is the key here. This is the linchpin. This is the thing that allows us to go do the hard thing, because if I just get up here and guilt trip you and make you feel bad, that's not going to last. But if the Spirit gets unleashed in your lives to go do this because of God's Word, because of the Gospel, it will last. Look at what it says in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of the Lord. What this is saying is this is saying we welcome others because Jesus has welcomed us. We already talked about how much Jesus gave up to come down here. He gave up even more to allow us into his family. Charles Spurgeon says, We were not picked because we were perfect, nor because we had no fault, nor because God got anything from picking us. But in loving condescension, he covers our faults and sought our good. He welcomed us into relationship with him. In the same way, we must welcome others into relationship with us. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus has done it all. He's welcomed us in when we didn't deserve it. We were literally running the opposite direction, and he reached out and snatched us to him. So our impulse should be to do the same thing. When I don't want to do that, when I go, ah, life groups are hard. Oh, I don't, I don't want to go talk to a person that's different than me. The answer is not try harder. The answer is die to self. And that becomes from pushing into the gospel even more. Get more clear on how Jesus accepted you than you can accept the other. This is what motivates us. This is what must drive us. So ask the Lord for a clear picture of what he did in the gospel. Ask the Lord for you to feel the gospel as it truly is. And the better we get that and the more we feel it, the more we realize how wretched we are and yet how loved we are in Christ, the more we're able to reach out to others. And this Holy Spirit who is our helper is unleashed in us. Community is possible, not because of our efforts, but because of God's Spirit working among us. When we do that, when we allow His Spirit free reign, our community is going to look supernatural. And our world's going to go, how did that happen? 
And the answer will be, not we did it on our own, but because Christ is reigning in us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for choosing us, for, for dying, sending your Son to die in our place. Lord, we so greatly deserve to be up on that cross, and yet your Son came and took it for us. And then he rose again, and we get the promise of not only that we don't die for our sins, but we get to live for eternity with you on the new earth. Lord, what an incredible gift. Help us to realize and to feel that. Where we're lacking and we don't feel the motivation to grow in community here, I pray, Lord, that you would push in even more of your gospel into our lives so that we would see it clearly. Lord, that we would see those on the margins and on the outside and we would reach out to them. Why? Because that's what you did for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that rightly. Help us to be a church that is so saturated with your spirit, thanks to your good news, that, Lord, we are a community that looks supernatural. Lord, I look forward to how you're going to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.